The known this is no other. It, when closely examined, also reveals itself to be consciousness in essence. Thus the consciousness substance in both these, the known and the knower, being one alone. Nothing other than the one consciousness ever has real existence anywhere. Hi, hello, welcome back to Aravu. We are working through the poem written by Sri Narayana Guru called Aravu, Consciousness, Knowledge. Sri Narayana Guru was a sage who lived between 1854 and 1928. He was recognized as a spiritual leader and it is his work as a poet that we are enjoying here today. So here we go. This is again, as you know, it's one of my favorites, a brilliant, exciting venture, this Aravu, meaning knowledge. Why is it exciting? It is so because it is the answer of all answers to questions that plague each of us at some time or another. What I believe the Guru is trying to teach us in this verse is that this and that and the other, in the ultimate sense, has no existence apart from consciousness. Every knowledge is a distinct, specific mode of functional appearance of the indistinct consciousness, as are all feelings and emotions. I see a bird, a parakeet, sits on the tree outside. I see it as a bird, and I recall that it is a bird because my mind retrieves the memory of it from my data bank of memories. Memories are stored in the mind. So the parakeet is a memory in my mind which is taken out and projected onto the bird. So I believe that this is the key point upon which a large segment of Aravu knowledge and this verse rests upon. So if the bird is a memory stored in the mind, then the bird is only in our mind. Our consciousness becomes experienced as the external world. So the consciousness that is the knowledge that knows that the bird is a parakeet and the consciousness that functions as the knower are the same. They are not two different consciousness. Therefore, there is no reality other than one and only one consciousness that exists anywhere and any time. These glimmers of clarity are difficult to verbalize and I hope the poem here elucidates the essence of my understanding of this verse. To not only to see the parakeet, to not only to see the lime green and red beak, to not only hear it talk, to not only be amazed as it takes flight, but to move beyond that which I see, to move beyond the qualities of this wonder, and to touch the sameness therein to I, and the parakeet of oneness and the oneness as we drink are of one consciousness. There I have now seen the parakeet, as I have seen me, I and the consciousness. We know that scientists are so keen to prove that which they know nothing of. They say a pot is a pot. So with haste, to find the meaning of everything, they carry out experiments. They become experts of the body, the solar system and even to find the secret of the sea. We know that we are waves rising and falling, but for the scientists, 
it is important to really understand how the wind plays her part in the movement of the sea. What is the depth of the sea? What is the content of the water? So they searched and came up with a large doll made of salt, a salt doll, and they sent it deep into the ocean. Humans are enriched with a mind that which makes them different to all other forms of life. And as well as this knowledge, they're also given ego which tricks them to thinking they are better and is capable of knowing everything. But whether scientist, doctor, an archaeologist or a theologian, one thing that we cannot get to the bottom of is the answer of the one reality. To know of it needs one to merge with the self and not to send salt dolls or ice dolls to the ocean. Of course, the salt will merge back with the ocean as one, and the mystery continues. This is how foolish we humans are in our quest to know and prove that which cannot be proven. All that one needs to do is to embrace the wonder, embrace it not with the body, but with the heart, and become one with the light. We need no tools. It is not a hunt, but a search for the truth. The one reality needs no tools. As the morning sun, just before sunrise, we don't see the sun. Still we know it is coming. We know it is there. And so the conscious reality is ever present. And you and I, we need only allow the consciousness to shine. So now I give you verse 1. Enjoy this first verse of Aravu, Knowledge Consciousness along with the explanations given by Swami Munni Narayana Prasad in his book of shorter philosophical poems of Narayana Guru. Whatever becomes an object of knowledge that could be referred to as this has no real existence apart from the knowing consciousness. Closely examined, all such objects are found to be different manifest forms of consciousness. The consciousness that assumes the form of the knowledge of the existence of objects and the consciousness that functions as the knower are not two. Therefore, no reality other than one consciousness exists anywhere at any time. We human beings think and know and let others think and know. Doing both these alone makes us real human beings, for humans are defined as thinking animals. Making human life satisfactory also requires our knowing and letting others know. Why do we think? We have a feeling that something exists, our own existence not excluded, and that feeling is what makes us think. The experience of nothingness would not make us think. Even in the case of the experience of nothingness, the existence of that experience is undeniable. Thus the feeling that something is makes us ask, what is it that exists? Is it what we perceive with our senses that really exists? Or is it merely an illusory vision? Aren't we sure that the canopy we see over the sky is really unreal? Still we continue to see it with our eyes. Then is it not possible that everything that we perceive with our eyes is a similar illusory vision? 
As all such doubts arise, an intense desire to know what really exists takes root in us. The emerging of all sciences, all philosophies, all mystical visions is a result of this human urge. In spite of all these efforts, we are yet to arrive at a final and convincing answer to the fundamental question of what really exists. Something apparently exists that becomes an object of knowledge. Anything that does not exist never becomes so. It could be asked, isn't it possible to think of your having money in your pocket even when your pocket is empty? Yes, but the money you think of then, though not in your pocket, is not non-existent. It is the existing money that you are thinking of even then. Something called money exists. The characteristics and utilities of it could make you imagine it being in your pocket, even when you have no money with you. Suppose what we call money has not become part of human life, or that no such thing exists, then you will have no chance to think of it being in your pocket. Therefore, it is the existing money, not the non-existent one, that you think of. The known this. Now, we have to know what is it that really exists. This inquiry became necessary because of our feeling that something exists. That about which we have the feeling of existence is called an object. The Sanskrit word for it is vishaya, here designated by the words the known this. What Guru tries to teach us in this verse is that this subject, in the ultimate sense, has no existence apart from consciousness. This world's existence, as far as I'm concerned, is as I am aware of it. For you, it is as you are aware of it. To assert that a world no one is aware of exists is meaningless. A world I personally am not aware of may exist. Then someone else should have been to be aware of it. If no one else exists to know of it, at least God would be aware of it. Whether mine, yours, or someone else, or of God, all awarenesses are events occurring in consciousness. Every knowledge is a distinct, specific mode of functional appearance of the indistinct consciousness, as are all feelings and emotions. That means knowledges, feelings, emotions do not exist apart from consciousness. The existence of the world, the object we know, is in the form of our experiences or awarenesses. To be more specific, objects in the world are perceived with our senses. All senses enable us to have different experiences, all concerning a single world. The aggregate of such experiences gives shape to the world each one of us perceives. All experiences admittedly take place in consciousness. In other words, 
the physical world we perceive, even its materiality, is nothing but a specific mode of expression of one consciousness. This much is about the experience of the world in general. Now let us examine the case of every specific experience, like this is a pot, this is a plate, etc., that forms part of the world. Suppose something you've never seen or known before is shown to you and you are asked, what is this? You will never be able to say what it is. Why is it so? Simply because you recognize something as such and such only when the object shown has already been known to you. In your act of recognizing something, you are really recognizing something that has previously been cognized. On your having sense contact with something, you pick up a previous experience of the same sort from your memory and project it on and identify it with the object you now get into contact with. Such is the way you recognize something. For example, when you see a chair and recognize it as a chair, you first go into contact with the chair. Then the chair experience you had before is picked up unconsciously from your memory and is projected on the object before you and then you recognize it as a chair. Is it not, then, something in your memory, in your mind, that you see as if it exists outside? If so, is it not our mind, our consciousness, that becomes experienced as external objects? Now let us take the case of the whole of the external world you constantly see directly with your eyes. What is actually within the bounds of your visual area is a small semicircular region, and everything beyond it remains unperceived. Though we consider the latter also as part of the visible world, its real existence is in your imagination as an extension of what you directly perceive. That means, of the infinitely extensive visible world, What is actually visible is merely a minute part of it. The rest of it is in your mind. You consider the latter also as part of the visible world, merely because of the possibility of directly seeing it if you reach where it is. Something existing in the imagination of the mind means its existence is in consciousness. Let us now examine What is within the visual area? It is filled with objects, and each of them, as we have already seen, is distinguished as such and such by bringing out the idea you have already in your mind and projecting it on the entity you come into contact with. All the ideas are different functional modes of one single consciousness, and they are projected outside and perceived as objects. It is consciousness alone that is perceived by consciousness. This is what happens when you see objects within the visual area. Take the case now of seeing a single object within the visual area. For example, a rose is before me and I recognize it as a rose. 
What are the factors I notice enabling me to distinguish it so as a rose? Its colour, its shape, its fragrance and the like are those factors. All these are not really the rose. These are only different qualities of the rose, the qualified. Whatever I perceive directly, whatever I know of it, is not the qualified rose, but the qualities of the rose. That means the qualified rose is not perceived, but my experience is of having seen it. This is the case with the entire world as well. We perceive the world to have countless qualities. While what we know are only the qualities of the world, the qualified world remains not directly known. Yet the existence of the qualified world is undeniable and our experience is to see it. Where does the world that we perceive then exist? The object, the world, is merely an idea we formulate in our mind. As the rose is an idea I formulate in my mind, with the qualities perceived being instrumental. That means the qualified object's existence, the existence of the world, is in consciousness. The Guru himself summarizes this stand in verse 32 of his Atmobadesya Sadhagam as follows. Whatever is known is not the all-supporting substance, but it's only its attributes. For the said substance remains always imperceptible. The earth and the like, all perceptible and hence attributes. Therefore, do not have real being of their own. What really is, is the one all-supporting Atma, or consciousness, pure and unconditioned. In essence, simply effulgence alone. This is to be recalled constantly. Now, where do the qualities we directly perceive exist? We think at least the qualities must exist outside. But how is it possible? The qualities can exist only where the qualified is. To say that a rose is here and its colour is somewhere else is meaningless. If the qualified exists in our consciousness, then the qualities also have to exist in consciousness itself. If both the qualified and the qualities exist in consciousness, then what do we perceive as existing outside? This is what is counted as Maya in Vedanta a mysterious creative urge inherent in consciousness makes it appear both as the qualified and the qualities. Really what we call outside, where the objects are thought of as existing, as well as inside, is also nowhere else than in consciousness. Seen holistically, nature the total of the self-unfoldment of the one reality has no inside or outside. Both these are concepts we have created with the knowing individual as the norm. Thus, closely looked at, we realize that what appears as the objective world is no more than the variegated and never-ending 
creative self-expression of the one consciousness. The Guru therefore says, the known, this is no other. Nothing other than the one consciousness ever has real existence anywhere. Along with my knowledge of the object, I have also the experience that I am the one who knows, that I am the subject. Who is this I who knows? My first impression is that I am the one who is sitting at the desk and writing, but apparently it is my body that occupies the chair near the desk. This body is merely mine. It is not myself. Whatever I could predicate as mine never becomes I, because these are all possessed by me. Really, I am the one who owns all that is mine. Thus, my sense organs, my mind, my intellect, and even my soul are not I, as these are all mine. Even the self that is thought of as mine is not the real self. Who or what then is this I who owns all these? It is merely a consciousness that cannot even be counted as mine. An object really becomes an object. It is to be remembered only when a subject knows it. Otherwise, it is no object at all. That means it is a subject, consciousness in essence, that makes an object. Similarly, A subject becomes a subject only when an object is perceived. The act of perceiving is the interlink between the two. Perceiving is a function of consciousness. Put otherwise, consciousness is the one substratum both in the subject and the object, or consciousness is the reality that unfolds itself as both. Everything thus is consciousness in essence. The task undertaken in this composition is a close study of this consciousness. We have just seen how what we consider as the object is really consciousness in essence. Who knows such an object? The very same consciousness. The final certitude we arrive at and the ultimate benefit of knowing are also experienced in consciousness. That means nothing outside the amplitude of consciousness happens either in human life or in the world. The present study is no exception. Consciousness is called chit in Vedanta. Every knowledge is about something that exists. Likewise, the consciousness that knows also exists. The existence of something is an experience we have. Even when we experience that there is no jar on a table, it is the knowledge of jar's existence that allows us to make this judgment. All experiences are different forms in which consciousness functions. Seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, hearing, imaginations, emotions are all experiences and even the materiality of the physical world is so. Every experience, admittedly, is a manifest form of consciousness. Thus, nothing exists apart from consciousness. What ultimately exists 
is called Sat in Vedanta. We face difficult situations in life. These worry us. Such situations arise when the coming together of subject and object do not agree with our likes and dislikes. These likes and dislikes, in their turn, have their being in consciousness and they depend upon one's value concepts. This value sense is known as Ananda and it, like Sat and Chit, also constitutes the essential content of consciousness. As we have already seen, creative self-unfoldment, owing to its own Maya, is inherent in consciousness, and it happens at all three levels of Sat-Chit-Ananda. As Sat, it manifests as all the objects, both existent, Sat, and non-existent, Asat, as Chit, it becomes unfolded as all knowledges and experiences of the subject. Such knowledge could either be true knowledge, Vidya, or untrue knowledge, Avidya. As Ananda, it appears as both happiness, Sukha, and suffering, Dukkha. Having this holistic vision enables us to perceive all the trials and tribulations of life as well as the happiness we feel merely as part of the sporting of one consciousness. This awareness alone ensures enduring peace in life. Guru himself, in his Atmabhadesu Sadhagam, asserts, A divine sport going on beginningless in the one pure and unconditioned consciousness, Atma. Indeed is all this. That brings us to the end of verse 1 and the explanations. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this verse 1. Until next time, when we will be looking at verse 2, um, thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. And thank you once again. <laughs>